Well, if you've been here uh, over the last number of months, you will remember, you will know that we've been working through the book of Isaiah together. We started in January, and Lord willing, next week is uh, the last uh, section of Isaiah 65 uh, and 66, or the middle of 65 to 66. So we're going to be finishing the book, Lord willing, next week. Now, that will position us on the 15th to start into our new series in the book of James. Over the last uh, number of months, uh, well, actually, I shouldn't say over the last number of months, a number of months ago, when we were beginning this series, Sherry Bauman suggested that uh, just to help facilitate, because Isaiah is a very difficult book, that maybe what we could do is periodically set something up like this, and as various pictures of Christ emerged in the book, then I'd preach that section, then maybe the next week we could just do a quick recap and put an item up uh, reminding us of those pictures of Christ in Isaiah. Now, this series has by far uh, been the most challenging for me uh, in terms of preaching, in terms of dividing the book itself, its structure, uh, in terms of content. So, I was forever, especially the first half of it, uh, I was forever changing what I was going to preach week by week, and so it became a little bit difficult to try to coordinate uh, that sort of an effort. So Sherry very graciously uh, just sort of worked behind the scenes and uh, with the help of some other people put together uh, what we have this morning. So it's Labor Day weekend. Uh, we're almost done the book. So this is a bit of a review. Uh, object lessons, some pictures of Christ in Isaiah. And uh, I just want to thank uh, Sherry uh, for the idea and for all the work that you've put into this, and various people who've either made uh, items or donated items uh, this morning. Sherry did. Sherry's dad, Bob, did as well. Uh, Steph Ferris, Dave Farrow, Thomas Armstrong, Megan Durkee, Margaret Love, and Amanda Wright all contributed to what we have here this morning. So I want to thank you all uh, for that. Now, working through Isaiah, one of the things that becomes apparent is that God uses a lot of uh, literary pictures, a lot of verbal pictures, lots of imagery, simile, and metaphor. And a lot of these become sort of extended object lessons. But one of the things I think we, we miss a little bit, because to us it's literary and historical, but to the people in the time it wasn't uh, literary at all. It was actually, in the first instance, concrete historical event which then got written up, and which when we read, we see it as imagery, but for them was historical reality and fact. So things like sacrifice. All the sacrifices in the Old Testament, we read about them and have pictures of them in our minds. But the people at that time weren't reading about these things and forming pictures in their minds. They were actually literally seeing the animal and they were literally in real time and space watching be put to death and its blood be shed and all of the rest. So for us, what becomes sort of a metaphorical picture actually begins as historical reality and historical event. So God seeds all of history with metaphor, but also with historical concrete realities, which then become metaphorical in that they picture spiritual truth. Today, in a little bit, we're going to be celebrating communion. And the communion, of course, is precisely an object lesson that Christ has given us 
that were the church is supposed to engage in year after year after year after year for, for centuries now. For, for, for 2,000 years, the church has been participating and celebrating communion together. And really, when it's reduced at one level, communion or the Lord's table is an ongoing object lesson, the one that's divinely authorized, the one that God has given us, the one that Jesus Christ Himself has given to the church, so that there is symbolism in the bread. It's the body of Christ. There is symbolism in the cup. It's the blood of Christ. And so we actually have divine authorization to continue with elements of pageantry and engaging in object lessons because Christ Himself has given us one, which we're going to be celebrating in a little bit. So this morning what I want to do is just walk through as a reminder some of the texts that we've seen in Isaiah, I'm not going to read the entire book, uh, I'm just going to take it a few texts, a few verses, and we're going to just sort of walk through this together, remind ourselves, refresh ourselves about the way Christ is depicted in this book in some ways, and then we're going to celebrate communion together. So this is, this, in a sense, this morning is a bit of an extended uh, meditation, okay, in terms of preparing our hearts uh, to worship the Lord ultimately through celebrating communion together. So before we begin uh, walking through these texts, let's pray. Our Father, we would ask uh, that this morning, in Your grace, You will uh, reveal Yourself as You are, the Holy One of Israel, the One who is high and exalted, the One who is transcendent. We pray that You will enable us to see Your Son, Your grace and Your goodness revealed to us. Help us to appreciate uh, in a fresh way, perhaps, in a new way, uh, in a more profound way, the way you use picture to help us understand who you are. We thank you, God, that you do not only uh, reveal yourself in terms of uh, propositional statement and uh, sort of abstract uh, thought, but you help us. You, you know how how much we struggle to understand who you are. We, we, you know the, the gap that there is between us, and so you give us analogies, you give us similes, you, you give us artistic and aesthetic imagination as a faculty and capacity so that we have a way of receiving how you want to reveal yourself to us. And we thank you for that. Uh, we thank you that you are a God who who is willing to meet us where we are, but then also to lift us up, uh, to begin to transform us. And we pray that this morning, as we consider your Son, we pray that you will lead us forward into transformation into His moral and spiritual image, for we ask it in His holy name. Amen. The first text, uh, which comes… In, now, I will just say this, unless you get nervous… I do realize I'm not normally short-winded, and it's usually enough time goes into one text. So I'm not going to be doing an exhaustive exposition of these themes. I just want you to know that sort of right up front. There's a lot of good stuff that could be said that's not going to be said. However, moving quickly, a verse that we're familiar with that comes right at the very beginning of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. It's a pivotal verse in that chapter. Remember, the chapter really is about judgment. 
The chapter is about the people sinning against God and uh, how He is going to move in wrath and there is going to be judgment and destruction. But sitting sort of thematically and structurally as the pivot point in this opening oracle of judgment, which establishes the tone for the book, is this one line that calls people to a recognition that actually they don't need to be destroyed by the wrath of God. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. So, what we have here, very foundationally in Isaiah, foundationally pictorially here as well, is a sheep's fleece, nice and white and, and soft. And the reality is for us, in a world with, with sort of lighting and bleach, you know, we can make things really, really white. But in the ancient world, the whitest thing you ever would have seen would have been a sheep's fleece or snow on the ground. And so, these are the very powerful images that God reveals through His prophet to the people. No matter how red your sin is, it can be as pure white as anything you have ever seen. And you think, too, in that culture where you have a very hot and bright sun, you get some snow on the ground, you know, before you have sunglasses invented, and all of a sudden that whiteness is dazzling in its brightness and purity. It's a radiant purity. And this is the promise of God right at the very beginning of the book. Although there's an enormous amount of judgment in Isaiah, and although the sins of the people are depicted in horrific agonizing detail as you work through the book and the consequences of their sin. God promises from the very beginning, listen, you are guilty, but let's settle the matter. Let's reason together. It's, it's legal terminology. Let's gather together in court, and I will take care of your sin. You can be as white as snow. You can be as white as wool, no matter how red, no matter how dark your sins have been. So, at the very beginning, it's an offer of salvation. Now, when you connect with Isaiah 53, which we will do later, you might also then, if you've brought forward what you've read previously, which you ought to, there likely is sort of a, a collocation of various lamb-sheep themes and imagery. So, when you hit Isaiah 53, where Jesus is the, the, the sheep before the shearers, it's silent, where, he, where He's the Lamb of God, probably supposed to connect a little bit of what's already been said. You get that sheep imagery and redemption imagery coming together again, but you've already had the first little sort of prolepsis of it here, pointing forward to the one who will actually bear sin and atonement. Because right now, this first opening verse still begs the question, how can God make our sins white as snow? Just by divine fiat, does He just magically sort of say, now they're gone? How will He actually take care of our sin? How can sinners actually be pure in His sight? This establishes a massive tension and problem in the book. The people are wicked, but God is going to bless them. How can He do that? Their problem is sin. It needs to be resolved. Here there's just a promise of resolution, but you're not told how. As you begin to work through the book, you begin to get more images, though, of how God is going to do that. He begins to give hints and promises of a figure who's going to come, who's going to make everything right. And this figure is sometimes referred to as the branch of the Lord. And we get this in Isaiah chapter 4, 
beginning at verse 2. Isaiah 4, verse 2, it says, In that day the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. Those who are left in Zion who remain in Jerusalem will be called holy, all who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over everything, the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and hiding place from the storm and rain. So here you have similar imagery. This is actually following on the end of chapter 3 of the universe, or chapter 4. You, you have similar imagery of judgment that you get in chapter 1, but somehow also blessing and purification. God is going to purify His people from their sin. And this is going to be associated, this is going to be attached somehow. Again, uh, the relationship isn't cashed out here, but you're told there's going to be this figure, the branch of the Lord. And so in this top corner here, you know, we have uh, the branch laid out for you, the branch of the Lord. In that day when the branch of the Lord is established, He's going to be beautiful and glorious, and there's going to be fruit in the land. Uh, the Lord is going to wash away all of the filth and the bloodstains through judgment and fire. But then God's going to do something fascinating. In the day of the branch of the Lord, when the branch of the Lord is established, what God is going to do is He's going to reveal Himself in the categories of Sinai. Once again, He's going to be that pillar of smoke before His people. Once again, He's going to be that flaming pillar of fire before His people. In other words, what God is saying is, when I establish uh, the, the, the branch of the Lord in the land, I am going to fulfill my covenant presence with you. I am going to be as present to you as I was at Sinai, but actually in a better way, because part of the problem was when, when God was establishing His covenant you know, through the mediating uh, work of Moses on Mount Sinai, uh, what were the people doing? Well, they're down below violating the covenant. You know, the, the covenant's broken as it's given in real time. That's, that's the message there. God is giving His covenant and it's being shattered as He's giving it. They don't even wait till they have it. They're in such a hurry to, to, to disregard God and to move on into idolatry and to go their own way. The covenant shattered before Moses even down the mountain with it in his hand, which is actually why Moses breaks the, 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 the tablets of stone. You remember that, that those tablets that he has carved with the finger of God, when he comes down and he, and he sees what's going on, he smashes them. Many people say, well, that's, well, Moses shouldn't have done that. You know, it's, it's, it's temper. No, that's not the case at all. Uh, Moses is never rebuked for that action anywhere in the text. He, he's rebuked for striking the rock later. He's not rebuked for, for shattering those, those, those commandments. And the reason is it's, it's a symbolic act showing what's actually already happened. He shatters the covenant because the covenant is shattered because of what the people have done. That's why, that's why he does that. No, better than Sinai in the day with the branch of the Lord the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and hiding place from the storm and rain. What God is going to do with the branch of the Lord surpasses Sinai 
He's going to establish a covenant with His people, a new covenant, which will not be broken. That then leads you, talking about fruitfulness, actually leads you into the next image uh, in chapter 5. I will sing for the one I love a song about His vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut it a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Here it's the Lord Himself, Yahweh, uh, the one who is high and exalted, but also who is the one who is loved. I will sing a song for the one I love. And this actually shows you a little bit of sort of a proper biblical relationship with God. In the next chapter, Isaiah 6, is going to be sort of the epitome of the revelation of God's transcendent holiness. And so, yes, you come to God. He is transcendent and holy and high above us. We, we, we worship Him in fear and awe, but we also love Him. I will sing for the one I love. My loved one had a vineyard. And both of those things go together in proper religion. Awe of God, but also love for Him. Here, this vineyard owner, the Lord, you know, plants the vineyard, does absolutely everything He can to ensure a good harvest. He, he builds a wall around the, the vineyard to keep out you know, animals. He does everything He can. He even builds a tower in the middle so He can go up anytime He wants to look over and survey His land to make sure it's okay. And this is an extended metaphor. He looks for a good fruit. He looks for a harvest of righteousness, but all he finds, the text will say, is bloodshed and violence, cries of the distress. So here we have a bunch of grapes sort of in the middle. This is what God's looking for, good, good, good fruit, good harvest. Now, Jesus picks up this image in Matthew 21. He tells a parable about the landowner or sort of the, and the vineyard. And how the vineyard owner keeps sending servants to collect the rent that's due. And they're always rejected. And then the vineyard owner, Yahweh, says, I know what I'll do. I'll send my son. And he sends his son, and that's Christ. And Christ comes into the vineyard, and the people say, this is the heir. Let's kill him, and the vineyard will be ours. And they kill him and throw him out of the vineyard. And then... Jesus says, what will, the, what will the owner do? They say, well, he'll put those people to death, and then he'll, he'll take the vineyard, he'll give it to someone else who will produce its fruit. And Jesus says, that's exactly right. That's what God is doing through Christ. God will have a harvest of fruitfulness. Now, we've, I mean, I talked about this in Isaiah 5, so I don't have time to talk about it now, but, but this Physical fruit in the Bible is a metaphor, becomes metaphorical for spiritual fruit. It's fulfilled in Galatians 5, 22 through 23, the fruit of the Spirit. And so through the Spirit of God, through what Christ has done, there will be a fruitful people. I will take it away from you, Jesus says. It will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. In other words, Jesus is the guarantee. The Son of God is the guarantee. The branch of the Lord is the guarantee that there will be fruit. And so, this is fulfilled through the work of Jesus Christ. There will be a fruitful people. Now, just so you know, you are supposed to be the fulfillment of that fruitfulness. You are supposed to be the ones where now God looks into His vineyard to see the type of fruit that He wants, and He sees it in you. So, it's guaranteed that there will be a harvest through Christ and the Spirit, but we are responsible 
for cooperating with the Spirit as He produces love, joy, peace, patience, etc. And that's our job to have sort of uh, to, to, to do our best to cooperate, to, to be open to sort of the, the agricultural work that God wants to do in us. Now, after chapter 5, you have chapter 6, and you know this is one of the, the highlights, one of the, the mountaintops of all biblical revelation. Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. Again, that's, that's somewhat Sinai imagery, but it's also the end of Exodus 40 when the tabernacle is finally set up in the glory cloud of God, the Shekinah fills it. And also when Solomon dedicates the temple, the cloud fills the tabernacle, fills it with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now, this is very important. Uh, contextually, verse 1, the year King Uzziah died, King Uzziah was a very important, powerful, and successful king in Israel. In fact, he became so powerful that we're told in uh, Kings, his pride became his downfall after he was so successful. And he ends his life by going into the temple to offer incense, something only the priests can do. And the priests say, Uzziah, you're a great king, but you have no, you, this isn't what for you. God does not want you here. And in his pride, he basically says, get out of my way. I'm going to do what I want. I'm the king. Look how successful I am. And leprosy breaks out in his 40s. He's rendered ceremonially unclean, has to flee out of the temple under the wrath and curse of God, dies later outside of the city, not even buried with the king's. And so when Uzziah dies, you have this sort of mix. You've lost who was, someone who was a very powerful king, but someone who usurped their role before God. In fact, you have to puzzle this out on your own, but priests came from Levi and kings came from Judah, so you couldn't have kings from Levi or priests or from Judah. But Jesus is a king-priest, and so you actually have a massive problem in terms of messianic fulfillment. How can you have a king priest when they always come from different tribes and they can never come from the same one? How can Jesus be the high priest and the king? It's a problem. Unless, unless there's a priest who predates Levi himself. Unless there's a priest of God who predates, who antecedes even uh, you know, Aaron as the high priest, and there is one. The writer of Hebrews notes this through Psalm 110, through Genesis 14, that there once was in the time of Abraham, before the birth of Levi, but well before Aaron, well before the priesthood, there was a priest, his name was Melchizedek. And in fact, he was a priest of God, but he was also a king. Genesis 14 gives you a king priest. And you never have a king priest again until Jesus Christ. He's the king priest.
priest, king in the line of David, priest in the line of Melchizedek, not Levi. Here, Uzziah is cursed for trying to bring these roles together. Isaiah says, I am undone because I have seen the king. It's a pretty good reminder that whoever is in the corridors of power here on earth is not sort of definite article, the king. God is the one who's on the throne. The kings of Israel came and went. God was still the king. Presidents and prime ministers will come and go. God is still the king. My eyes have seen the king. And the result of seeing the holy king is your death. I am ruined. I am undone. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The altar, of course, symbolizes atonement. The coal is what's used, obviously, to burn the offering. And so when the coal is taken out from the altar with tongs and then brought over to Isaiah and touched at the point of his sensitivity, as he recognizes, I am undone for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. It's his lips that are touched sort of in response to, I want to be really careful with this language. I don't, I don't like this language or the connotation it has today. But it's sort of, it's, 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 it's applied to, to the area of felt need. His recognition of being unclean in this area, that's the domain that God comes into. He says, I can, I can heal you even here. He's not saying, no, he doesn't say, no, 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 don't worry, don't worry. Your speech is just fine, Isaiah. He says, no, I, I'll take away your guilt. Your guilt has taken away your sin, atoned for. So this burning coal here symbolizes you know, holiness and judgment, but also redemption which then moves into mission, because now God's going to send Isaiah out. Who, who will go for us? Whom should I send? Isaiah says, here I am, send me. In other words, having been, in a sense, having had a salvation experience, now he wants to get to work in the kingdom of God. This has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Now, the fulfillment of this, then, is going to come in the fulfillment of the sacrificial system, that is where atonement is actually provided. The whole system itself is a symbol pointing forward. The, the, the altar is a symbol of the symbol pointing forward. The coal is a symbol of the symbol of the symbol pointing forward. And it's all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, I had suggested that we just start a fire and have a bunch of coals and a bunch of uh, lighter fluid, and Sherry said that was a bad idea. So, what we have instead is an artistic representation of a coal, a fiery coal, and so that's what this is here. Not, not quite as fun as the fire, but, uh, but we'll, we'll let that pass for now. So, the flaming coal, the burning coal, symbolizing again how Christ provides fulfillment through, uh, through the, He provides fulfillment of the sacrificial system, you know, through His death, everything that it was pointing forward to, everything that it was symbolizing, the reality is found in Jesus Christ. So, Jesus is the way that when you come face to face, when you stand before a holy God, when you begin to realize who God is and you begin to see who you are, you recognize that there is death apart from atonement. And atonement, your guilt being taken away, your sin atoned for, only comes through atoning sacrifice. And every sacrifice that was ever offered before Christ was always a pointer. This is what we need. We need substitutionary atonement. 
but it comes in fulfillment through Jesus Christ. Chapter 7, verse 14. We'll start at verse 12. Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Isaiah has just, God has just said through Isaiah to the king, you can ask God for a sign. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Now, this, of course, is picked up by Matthew uh, 7.14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will give him the name Emmanuel. So, we have the manger here. Of representing that, that Christmas fulfillment of, of incarnation, you know, the virgin bearing the son, bearing the child. Well, it's important here, I talked about this when we went through this text, that this is not, in the first instance, a straight verbal prediction of the Messiah coming. It is actually a sign given to King Ahaz that he himself will see. He doesn't live 750 years to see the fulfillment in Jesus. He says that before this child knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. So Ahaz is afraid because there's an alliance against him, and there's these two nations that he's worried are going to come and destroy him. And Ahaz says, just trust God. Don't worry about these two nations. They're they're no no threat to you at all if you trust God. And then God says, I'll give you a sign, Ahaz, if you want. He says, oh, no, I won't test God. I won't ask for a sign. Ahaz says, well, God's going to give you a sign anyway. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a child. That's the virgin, a virgin in Ahaz's day who will have a child through, through natural paths of conception. The pattern fulfillment is if this virgin in Ahaz's day will eventually become pregnant and give birth to a son who will be given this special name. And before this boy grows to a certain age, the nations around, or these two nations that Ahaz is afraid of will be, will be destroyed by the Assyrians. That's the referent here. But in terms of pattern fulfillment, if God is seeding history with object lessons, then Matthew looks at this text and he says, if the sign of God's presence, because Emmanuel means God with us, if the sign of God's presence is the conception of a child in the virgin, the one who's a virgin at that point, and then she gives birth, and the child is named Emmanuel as a sign of the presence of God, how much more so is this gloriously fulfilled, if this idea is fulfilled by someone who's, who conceives, who is literally a virgin, conceives through the agency of the Holy Spirit, whose child is not merely a sign that God is with us, but the child is in the most literal sense God with us, because that child is actually God in human flesh. You, you can't have more of an Emmanuel than that. This child in in Ahaz's day is a sign of God's presence. The child born of Mary is God's presence. Because the child is God Himself. You must never forget this. When 
when Jesus was in the manger, the humanity was in the manger. Orthodox Christology has always said that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He's never not fully God. The, the body, the human body of Jesus is in the manger. The deity of Jesus is still omnipresent. It's everywhere. Christ as deity, even humanly a baby, in terms of divinity, still upholding all things by His powerful Word, which means the molecular, chemical, electrical structure and events taking place in the body of the baby Jesus were all sustained by the deity of Christ Himself at the same time. The humanity of the incarnate Christ depends on the deity of the incarnate Christ for its very existence and reality. He is never not God. And so this text is fulfilled. The virgin conceives miraculously and gives birth to God with us more than a sign, the reality. This child is uh, very, very special as we find out in Isaiah 9, verse 5 through 7. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. So why is there going to be universal peace? For the reason is to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So this child, Emmanuel, in fulfillment who is born, born in the manger, is not destined to spend the rest of his life and the rest of his existence sort of in that level of humility. Now, eventually, he is going to reign on the throne. He is going to occupy David's throne, and not merely David's throne. He is going to occupy the central throne of the universe. You see that in Revelation 5. So, this son who is given, the son who is born, the government is on his shoulders. You know, again, King Uzziah is dead. All the, the, the next king is going to die. There's going to be a succession of kings until this one. Eventually, you're going to get a king who reigns forever. This is part of the promises to David, that God promises David he will always have a son who reigns on the throne. And that can only be accomplished in one of two ways. That can only be accomplished as if, as if through natural succession, you have an infinite series of kings being born and reigning and dying, and the next king takes his place. You have an infinite series of that, or you can finally have one king who lives forever and reigns forever. Now, those are the only two ways you can have an infinite reign an everlasting reign. And through Christ, we know it's, it's the latter. It's, it's one king reigns forever. The government is on his shoulders. He will establish justice. He's called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Some, some fantastic paradoxes here. The, the, the child who is born, the son who is given, is an everlasting father. Or literally, the father of eternity. 
how does, how does a son who is born bear the title Father of Eternity? How, how, how does that work? You know, how is a child who is given the mighty God, how does that work? You see, you're, you're puzzle this through. I mean, how, how is this all possible? And again, in fulfillment, it's deity and humanity. How do we know it's the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this? The child will come in less than propitious circumstances. Chapter 11, verse 1, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, similar in some ways to the branch. So so here we have a stump. And in, in a field, of course, you can just use your imagination, you, know, you, you can have a stump that still has some sort of root system. It's like a tree that's been chopped down or cut down, and, and so there's still a root system, but it's dead. Now, I've also been told, just so you know, this is, all, this, is off to, this is all for free. I've been told that there may or may not be a cricket living in this stump, okay? And I'm, I'm serious. If you find a cricket... Do not kill it. Either pick it up and take it out to the garden or find someone who will, okay? We are not bringing a cricket into this auditorium as part of an object lesson and ending its little life, okay? We are not doing that. So if you find a cricket, take care of it. Now, this stump uh, is obviously not going to be conducive to the growth of anything else, a shoot, a branch, fruit. This stump is dead. It would take a miracle for life to ever come out of that. And God, when He looks at the, the Davidic house, He says, the Davidic house is just a, it's just a stump. But I'll cause a branch to grow. There's going to be a little shoot that comes out of this stump. I'm going to nurture that shoot. And and through that shoot, coming coming out of what looks like absolute death, there will be a shoot that comes out from His roots. A branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on Him. The Spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The Spirit of counsel and of might. The Spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And He will delight in the fear of the Lord. What God is saying is, oh, don't, don't, don't. Trust your eyes when you look at my people. Trust what I can do with them. My son is not coming to this world because the people are ready for him and, and because, you know, we're, we're just such good soil. So no, I'm going to do this sort of almost unilaterally. In an atmosphere of death, I'm going to supernaturally do a work which will be amazing, which will create fruit, and it's through the, through the branch and the Spirit of the Lord. Chapter 28, verse 16, a very famous verse. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. Now, here we have an actual cornerstone. You can, you can tell it's a cornerstone if you know about stones. By the, the heiress here and here and the way that this has been dressed. Now, Thomas and I know stones, 
right, Thomas? So this would be the face. This side would face out. This side would face out. You'd have other stones joined around it, correct? Yeah. Now, we were actually going to bring in a much more significantly sized one, but it was going to take three normal people or one of me to lift it, and uh, I wasn't available. And so we decided we would use this one, the cornerstone. And one of the things actually that Thomas said that he did, which actually really is really fascinating, is so Thomas sort of dressed and shaped this a little bit, um, the way that they would have when they were building for the temple. You see, because you, you get stones, and, and to actually build walls with them, you, you need a certain level of straightness in the edges. They, they need to be able to fit together, right? So, so they aren't just sort of walking around, finding sort of natural stones and just forming them until they found the ones that matched. You, you have to shape them a little bit. It requires you know, a tremendous amount of skill. And so when you had a cornerstone, though, when, when the heiress was just right and it was dressed just the way you wanted it to be, you would never throw out the cornerstone because everything fit around it. If, the, if a stone doesn't fit around this, you don't get rid of this, you start shaping the other stone, or you get rid of it. And what God is saying is, this is my cornerstone. I have a beautiful plan, and everything will fit around it. Later on, cornerstone language will be used in the book of Psalms, for example. If you reject the cornerstone, if you reject God's cornerstone, then, you, then God rejects you. And it's a sense of just almost like, like there's no animosity, there's no hard feelings. It's just, it's just God is building around this. And if you don't want to be built around this, there's no room for you. There's no place for you because this is what establishes everything. And that's what God is doing. He's laying a cornerstone. This is Jesus Christ. I will lay a cornerstone in Zion. I will build everything around Him. And if you don't fit around Him, you don't fit into my structure. That's what I'm doing. I've laid a cornerstone in Zion. Now, another text in Isaiah, speaking of cornerstone, will say that... um, if you fall on him, you'll be broken to pieces. The one on whom it falls will be crushed. Now, you're welcome to come up later and look at these things in more detail. But I just want you to know, if this falls off onto your toes, you will provide a perfect object lesson of, and he on whom it falls will be crushed. Okay? So just be really, really careful. And the church has no liability for this, but Thomas does. She just just so we know. So, God is building everything around this. Isaiah 42, verse 1, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. The servant of the Lord. This is where this figure is introduced. We looked at all kinds of service, or servant songs and passages uh, in the text, in Isaiah, uh, different perspectives, multifaceted. But the Spirit of the Lord is someone who's going to be filled by the, sorry, the servant of the Lord is someone who's going to be filled by the Spirit. He's going to lead and restore Israel and the Gentile nations as a light to them. He's going to be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And so you get this sort of this, 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 this paradox that he is going to reign and be exalted, and he's also going to be despised and rejected. He's going to be honored by God and hated by people. This basin and towel here represents uh, Jesus washing our feet. 
He's the servant of the Lord. He comes not to serve, but he comes not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, showing us that great love through through foot washing, but even more through pouring out his life's blood for us. The climactic servant song is in Isaiah fifty two thirteen through fifty three twelve. You're familiar with these words. We'll just read uh, a small section from verses three through five. He was despised, actually we'll start in verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. That establishes some of that imagery again, or draws on it. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. So he's also the man of sorrows, who suffers and dies for us. And this text itself will end with the promise of after he's cut off, that is, after he's cut off from the land of the living, after he's dead and buried, he receives an inheritance. So, so here there's this, this promise that would have been very difficult to understand in Isaiah's day, that, that even though he's despised and rejected, even though he dies bearing the sin of other people, even though he's cut off from the land of the living and is buried, he, he still sees his offering, he still prolongs his days, he still receives an inheritance, which means he's alive somehow after he's been dead and buried. It's been awfully puzzling until you had the resurrection of Jesus to see how it's all fulfilled. But this imagery all sort of moves you up to the cross, to the shed blood of the servant of the Lord. He provides atonement. He dies not for his own sin, but he dies bearing our sin. He's crushed for our iniquities. He's pierced for our transgression. By his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so, the question in verse 118 is, yes, God, you promised you'll make our sins white as, as wool, but how? You work through all these, these images of branch and servant, and cornerstone, and, and the throne, and the virgin giving birth, and, and again, the promise of, uh, symbolized by the cold promise of purification, but how, how, how? How will we have good fruit? Well, a servant is going to come who's willing even to die for us. And that's what we celebrate with the divinely authorized object lesson of communion, the, the body of Christ pierced for our transgressions, the blood of Christ poured out in atonement for our iniquity. Now, next week, Lord willing, we're going to be looking at the very last bit of Isaiah, which is about the new heaven and new earth. And one of the things that we're told in the new heaven and new earth is that the wolf will lie down with the lamb. Now, up here, I'm not sure if you can see this over on this side. There's only, we, we tried different ways of where would this go, and this is the best we could do. So there's this sheep that's here. And, and this, this sheep is symbolizing the new heaven and new earth. There, there's a wolf that's coming that's going to go here. Um, but Amanda was sick and wasn't able to bring it. So right now we have a lonely sheep, which actually is really good because we're not in the new heaven and new earth just yet. And so if they were together, there might be problems. So in the future, though, we will safely be able to put a wolf with that sheep, symbolizing the new heaven and new earth when they can lie down together uh, in peace. And how do we get that? We get there 
only through God's fulfillment of promises, particularly through the death of the servant of the Lord and His resurrection. So, in communion this morning, we have a lot to think about in terms of who Christ is, you know, the different ways He's revealed, uh, the different ways God shows Him to us. And so, I'm actually going to, we're going to, in just a moment, uh, the communion table is going to be brought down uh, and set up here. Uh, and so, just take a moment, uh, just in reflection, to think about uh, some of these, some of these objects, some of these pictures of Christ, uh, our fulfillment, how the Lord has presented Him to us in the Book of Isaiah. Uh, we ask the gentlemen come forward, or those who are helping to distribute the elements, to come forward at this time. And in just a few moments, we'll celebrate communion together. <laughs>